Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Tina Stoll, also known as Baroness Stoll of Beast and former leader of the House of Lords, but also the jobs that Tina has done and the story she has about working for John Major inside number 10, working for William Hague when he was leader of the opposition, being head of comms for the BBC Trust during the Hutton Report. My word, are you in for a treat. Before that, don't forget you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And it can be anything, by the way. It could be a guest suggestion. It could be, particularly if you work for a politician or you are one or you think someone might be good or in any way you can help get in touch, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. But as regular listeners will know, um, this thread about politicians you've seen in unusual places or just any weird encounter you've had with them, Josh gets in touch. He said, in 2011, I was at Darlington Station waiting for a train home to Edinburgh. I queued up at the busy station cafe. I know the exact one, Josh. When I realised the person directly in front of me was the then Labour leader, Ed Miliband. He ordered his coffees for him and his team when an awkward situation occurred. Josh, I can see this coming a mile off. He didn't have any money on him. Oh, it reminds me of Gordon Brown on budget day. He didn't have any money on him. Some desperate patting of his jacket and trouser pocket still didn't produce the necessary funds. He then gave a frantic look and shout over to his team. But they didn't see or hear him. I was about to offer to pay for his coffees when an older gentleman jumped in with a card and very very generously took care of the payments. However, that's not the end of the story. I looked up at the man who paid for the coffees. It was Neil Kinnock. This is astonishing. It's always Neil Kinnock. Of all the emails we get, I would say half now are sightings of Neil Kinnock. Very elegantly. Don't forget, you can see Neil Kinnock live at the Duchess Theatre on Monday, the 10th of January. I can also announce, I think I already have announced, that my guest at the end of January, on the 24th of January, is the deputy leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner. One of the brightest new stars of the Labour Party. Uh, One of the biggest figures, really. um, And someone who has so much ability and is a star. um, That will be absolutely fascinating. Rarely out of the news. So what a a Labour double bill January is. Monday the 10th of January, former leader Neil Kinnock. Monday the 24th of January, current deputy leader Angela Rayner. You can get tickets for those shows and the Christmas special which is on Monday the 20th of January with Rosanna Allen Khan and Jacob Rees-Mogg at mattford.com slash live. Now, on to today's guest, Tina Stoll, Baroness Stoll of Beeston. There are some phenomenal moments in this. But I began by asking Tina, I always want to make sure that I pronounce people's names right, and Tina's surname, as you'll see from the episode's title, doesn't look like it's pronounced Stoll, so I just checked... Um, at the start, whether I got a name right. I get her surname right, but uh, uh, as you could probably guess, I got something wrong, uh, and it was a title. Uh, no, you, that's right, Tina Stoll, but I'm not Baroness Beeston, I'm Baroness Stoll of Beeston. Oh, right. Oh, OK, so it's the title that I got wrong. <laughs> I know I'd get something wrong. 
We should explain why you chose Stole of Beeston. Obviously, Stole's your surname, but yeah. you're you're from Beeston in Nottingham. I'm from Beeston in Nottingham. Yeah, so I I um I decided I wanted to fly the flag for Beeston. I don't know whether you realise this, but every peerage has to be unique. And uh, I was aware that there'd been a Lord Stole, no relation to me, sort of. I don't know when it was, but um, because of that, I'd have to be of somewhere. I couldn't just be Baroness Stoll. So um, I wanted to be of Beeston. So that's that's why I chose Beeston. I mean, I can't believe in the history of the House of Lords. No one's ever chosen Beeston before. But uh, oh, yeah, And you know there's a Beeston in Leeds. So would had someone chosen that, would you have to be Baroness Stoll of Beeston, Nottingham? Or doesn't it work like that? Well, it, it gets complicated because... So the full title, the whole kit and caboodle, is Baroness Stoll of Beeston, of Beeston in the county of Nottinghamshire. So um, the day I was uh, introduced, and you know, you have the ceremony in the House of Lords, and my family was up in the um, gallery, and the uh, you know the the clerk reads out your name or your title. And afterwards, my brother said, well, he said, he said it twice. Why did he say it twice? And he said, no, he, he had to. But so what? So, so what? What it means is, is that. Um, there are a lot of peers who are not, um, they're of somewhere, this gets really boring, technical, but it depends where the comma comes. So someone like Mandelson, Lord Mandelson, he is just plain more Lord Mandelson. But if you looked him up, he's probably Lord Mandelson of somewhere. He'll have some territorial um, sort of connection. And um, so there may have been, or there could still be now, uh, somebody who arrived in the House of Lords and wants to be, you know, Lord Smith of Beeston or Baroness Smith of Beeston. And that, that, that would be OK. That would be allowed. And, uh, and it wouldn't matter if it was also from uh, a different or the same county. And the reason so why I ask... Really boring now, sorry. No, no, well, the reason I ask is not to have a, a technical discussion about um, how uh, peerages are, are worded, but because you're from Beeston in Nottingham, and obviously it's a place I know well, it's a suburb of Nottingham, it's a very nice part of Nottingham, um, and it's um, it's very cool that, you know, its name is now sort of enshrined in your, in your title, but it must have been a proud moment for you to grow up in, uh, you know, what is a, a normal part of the world... And to yeah. be able to then effectively have that as part of your name when you become a member of the House of Lords. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I left I left Beeston. I left home when I was 18. So I haven't lived in Beeston for a long time, but my parents are still there. And uh, and I go back home to see them sort of, you know, once a month. So I still I still say when I'm going there, I'm going home. So it's it's still very much part of who I am. So yeah, it did. I was I was incredibly proud and um and pleased to have the opportunity as i say to sort of you know fly the flag a bit for beast and ring i mean you've had a obviously a phenomenal career but your dad was a painter and decorator your mum works in a local factory they aren't traditional backgrounds of someone who ends up in the house of lords now obviously as your life has gone on and, and incrementally you climb the ladder perhaps it becomes less surprising but do you think when you were growing up in beeston you ever thought you'd be in the house of lords or that your mum and dad would have no, no. I mean, I'm not even sure we really knew what the House of Lords was. You know, I mean, not not anything that, that came across my mind at all. But I mean, I, you know, it was, um, 
I mean, I, I, fe- I mean, when I when I was first asked to go into the House of Lords by David Cameron, I mean, I it was you know it wasn't something I was expecting even at that stage in my you know in my life or sort of you know my in my career as it were. But but to grow up in the place that I did and end up in a place like the House of Lords is is a very you know it's a it's a dramatic difference. I mean, it's just. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to compare, really. Um, You've had a number of big jobs along the way. Your first job, political job, I think I'm right, is saying it was in 1996 working for, for John Major in, in Downing Street. So at that time you were a civil servant, but were you political at that point? Not particularly, no, no. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really become sort of political as such until I went to work for William Hague and that was a political appointment and that was when I went to run William Hague's office when he was leader of the opposition and leader of the Conservative Party but I mean I'm not I'm not from a political family at all I mean um, you know politics did not feature in in our house when I was growing up although interestingly my granddad on my dad's dad was um, he was a Labour councillor. I mean, he died before I was born, but um, he was um, the mayor of Beeston, actually, um, in um, in the coronation year. It's very important that it's coronation year, because lots of, that's always, you know, he wasn't just the mayor, he was the mayor in coronation year. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so um, there was that, that sort of um, political connection with him, but that stopped with him. And as I say, he died before I was born. But uh, I mean, both my parents would be would have been sort of you know traditionally Labour type people. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, my mum's dad, although he died when she was very young, and she grew up in sort of in Ashfield, um, he too um, had been quite active in the local Labour cooperative. So both my parents were Labour in terms of their sort of traditions and background. Um, but uh, I think they um, became sort of Tory voters. They were never actively political, but they became Tory voters once Mrs Thatcher arrived on the scene. And I think my mum was the first convert towards Mrs T. Um, I remember, I, in fact, I remember quite clearly, actually, my mum sort of commenting when Mrs Thatcher became leader of the Conservative Party when they were still in opposition and sort of saying, you know, I think I might vote for her. You know, my dad sort of, you know, looking as if, really, you know, and, and being quite surprised by that. But I think by the time of the um, election in 83, um, my dad had also sort of, I think, decided to vote uh, Conservative and they were always then very much, um, uh, if you like, Thatcherite Tories. And um, and I think because, you know, Mrs. Thatcher really sort of spoke to them. You know, she was, you know, she didn't influence them. She, in the way she spoke, I think, um, uh, sort of represented the kind of people that they were, you know. And my dad was self-employed and, you know, had always been self-employed. And, um, you know, my mum had sort of, you know, you know, was very, she was a very proud woman, still is a very proud woman. And she would always tell us all the time that, you know, we were well off and that, you know, I, I was brought up in a family where I believed that we were, you know, successful and, you know, and going places, you know, and didn't sort of, um, you know, sort of consider sort of our, you know, our sort of setup or, or, or our way of life, anything other than successful, you know, and, and, and that, that sort of generated in me, I guess, a lot of um, self-confidence in myself. And um, uh, and although, you know, I was um, I was ambitious as a teenager, I was ambitious 
my horizons were quite limited in that, you know, I was, I was, I decided I was leaving school at 16. I was going to local college to do secretarial training. And, you know, that was, you know, I wanted to be successful in that way. And, um, uh, and what led me to London when I left um, home at 18 and came to London wasn't because I was looking for some sort of, you know, career in politics or Whitehall or anything like that. I just heard that the civil service were recruiting secretaries with no experience, but based on their qualifications. And I thought that sounds a fantastic opportunity. And when I applied, I had no idea that meant I would have to leave home and go to London. I just, and it wasn't until I was sat in the interview in London, I'd made my own way down there on the train for the day. And they said to me, you know, this, you know, where, you know, do you know anybody in London? I suddenly thought, what is this? I said, why is this job in London? You know, I was literally, I completely had no idea. And, um, and they said, yes. And, you know, anyway, that's, that's how I arrived in London. And my first um, sort of couple of jobs in the civil service, uh, one was working for the RAF in Whitehall, which was fantastic. And, and the guys that I worked for, the RAF officers were just absolutely fantastic to me because I was, I was so green, Matt. I mean, if you could imagine this 18 year old, um, you know, sort of, um, sort of, you know, typical sort of not young girl who'd arrived in London, very unsophisticated, but very determined and hardworking and, and, you know, driven to succeed, but in a very sort of, you know, be a great secretary, nothing more than that. Um, and the chaps that I worked for, they were just um, so um, supportive of me and, you know, helped me learn and develop. And, um, and from there I went to Washington and it was when I got to Washington in the British Embassy in Washington that I started becoming interested in politics because when you live and work in Washington, there's, there's not really much else going on. And, you know, if, if, if you're not interested, um, you might as well go home. But I didn't, I didn't go there because I thought, oh, I want to be, you know, amongst all of this powerful sort of, you know, it was just when I got the chance to go overseas, I thought, well, you know, what is the best place I can go? America. <laughs> you know, and that was why I went, you know, not because I sort of, you know, was, was um, so that was, so my, my interest in politics was incremental, you know, it wasn't like a sort of, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't party driven as it were, you know, I wasn't sort of, uh, you know, at university and steeped in activism or anything like that. It was, it was a much more, um, uh, you know sort of uh job type sort of uh how does it work you know and, and 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 I think when I was in Washington to be fair I got very um hooked on the drama of politics you know and you sort of see how dramatic uh, yeah. it is um so that was that's how I, I I sort of found my way into politics your mum's narrative that you're a successful family you say almost with a with a twinkle in your eye is it that um you believed her at the time but perhaps in retrospect when you moved to london or washington you realized that success means different things to different people you know was she right to say that you were successful or, or was that a way of instilling yeah. you with confidence no no she was definitely right and i do think it's important that you say that you know success different definitions of success because one of the things i feel strongly about these days is that we have too narrow a definition of success we see success particularly people who you know spend their 
working life doing the kind of things I do, they see success very much in our own uh, image and see it very much, you know, we associate success with power almost. And I use the word power quite loosely as in, you know, people who are in decision-making roles, you know, have one of those jobs where you have the um, responsibility to decide things which affect other people's lives. Whereas success, you know, really, you know, can mean all sorts of things. And, and, and there are a lot of successful people who are striving to achieve and to provide, you know, security for themselves and, um, you know, and have a decent way of life that, you know, don't want to be powerful. And, um, and for my mom, you know, she, compared to her own background growing up, I mean, mom grew up in terrible poverty and a very, very tough uh, upbringing. And um, to my mom, what, what we had as a family, and it was a real tight family. I mean, it was, you know, an incredibly, I was very fortunate to have such a stable family life. Um, you know, that was success to mom, you know, and she, she had, you know, really um, uh, helped provide for us, you know, alongside dad. And, you know, she used to say to us, you know, we're lucky that we've got a dad who goes out to work every day. And I never heard a moan about the fact that he was out at work all day. I mean, he'd go out the crack of dawn, he would always be late coming back. Um, because he would always go where the work was. And, you know, it sometimes he'd have to travel quite a lot, you know, to, to different places. And, um, and that, you know, was, was what she believed. So it, it, it did help me believe in myself, because when, when I got to London, and I was suddenly amongst people in a working uh, atmosphere who were very different to me, um, I didn't feel in any way intimidated by them. And I remember um uh, a couple of times when I was you know first couple of years that was in London um there was uh um there was two things one was when uh somebody sort of described me as being um one of the officers RF officers said that you know I was disadvantaged or something and I was really insulted I mean I was like you know there's there's nothing disadvantaged about me at all you know and I thought how dare you you know I mean it was you know it was it was not the sort of thing I I had ever heard and I didn't think I was um and he didn't mean it in a bad way obviously but um but also um you know it just as I say it just made it possible for um for me to be able to you know, mixed with people, I guess, uh, in a way where I didn't feel in any way uh, inferior. And, and I think because although I was recruited as a secretary and was therefore in a supporting role to people who were, you know, doing jobs more important than mine or with more responsibility, I took my job seriously and, um, and they could see that. And there was this mutual respect, really. Uh, and I, I do credit, and I, I do credit my parents with, um, uh, you know, and the environment more broadly that I grew up in, but I, I, I credit them really with much of what I've achieved because it was what I learned and, you know, from growing up that has really sort of propelled me throughout my career more than anything else, to be honest with you. Um, a lot of people from working class backgrounds, particularly out of London and the South East, talk about having imposter syndrome at some stage when they enter into these sorts of industries, or particularly when they find themselves in the House of Commons or the House of Lords. They say almost the building itself is designed to intimidate, which I, I never agreed with, but nevertheless, people do say it. 
I get the sense that perhaps you you don't feel that, that you never felt um, intimidated by Parliament or, or, or by any setting you found yourself in. Well, I suppose anyway, you have to, my, my working life sort of falls into two parts, really. Um, and I think the first part, when, um, if, I, if you like, if you want to call it my sort of secretarial half of my career, um, I wasn't intimidated by anything, really. And, uh, and I, the, I, I received a huge amount of support and encouragement from people who were as I say, you know, higher up the chain than me or, or, or whatever. I think once I got to the point where um, uh, I was no longer a secretary and perhaps I was, I felt that as I, as I progressed through that part of my career, I was having to prove myself all the time. Then I think that's when, you know, I mean, you call it imposter syndrome, but the, I think that's when that sort of, um, demon you know would 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 uh on occasions affect me you know so it, it's i i it, it it's not you know i'm not i'm not saying for one moment now you know as all you know after i entered the house of lords that i was um you know ever felt sort of intimidated but interestingly i mean i suppose you know when i first when I first went in the House of Lords, I, I didn't feel I didn't feel intimidated by being in the House of Lords. And as much as I was hugely grateful for the opportunity to, to be made uh, a member of the House of Lords, and it's a huge privilege. I mean, it's 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 amazing. Um, I didn't feel, you know, I wasn't somebody who felt like, you know, well, I, I'm it sounds odd to say this, but I, I didn't feel oh, I'm not worthy. Do you know what I mean? And I don't mean that in a sort of big-headed way. It was, you know, I, I just thought, no, well, I, you know, I, when people would say to me, you know, what is your area of expertise, which is code for why are you here? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I used to sort of say, well, um, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm here because I'm an expert in something. I, you know, I'm here, I hope, in order to be able to do something useful. Um, and to bring a perspective that, you know, might not be, um, you know, widespread in, in a place like the House of Lords. But I think it was when, you know, sometimes, um, you know, I, I was conscious that my, my appointment to the House of Lords and perhaps some of the roles that I then had subsequently were um, uh, surprising to people who had known me as a secretary. And, and I felt perhaps when I first went into the House of Lords that it was my responsibility, I think this was misplaced on my part, but my responsibility in a way to make some people feel better about the fact I was a member of the House of Lords um, so that they didn't feel in any way that, you know, sort of somebody, you know, who had, you know, started as a secretary and progressed as a secretary, not achieved the same sort of, you know, academic type qualifications they had was now on a level with them that that was not a threat to them you know that that I felt that was something that I had to sort of you know help them manage. <laughs> it was a very generous um, way of wording it you're basically trying to um, help them overcome their own snobbery I guess. Well, I don't know that it would be snobbery because I don't think it's I don't think it's a, a class thing. I don't think um, I don't think that I think uh, and the House of Lords is is actually much more 
varied and diverse than perhaps people might imagine it you know because it's an appointed house it's 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 actually um more varied in 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 some respects perhaps even than than the house of commons um but um no i think that um what what's one of the things which is a bit different about me is that if you look at my if you look at my cv as it were and all the jobs that i've done you could look at that one way and imagine that you know i have been on a sort of career pathway which is very similar to a lot of other people who i who are now my contemporaries in the house of lords but actually the first 15 years or more of my working life I was very much somebody who was never going to reach the house of lords I mean you know I, I was that was not my destiny and when I um when I stopped being a civil servant and I left number 10 um in uh, 96 I mean it, it was quite possible at that point that I would have um you know never been heard or seen of again you know, by the sort of people who I had worked amongst over the previous five years in particular, you know, in, in, in Downing Street, whether it was the, you know, the various cabinet ministers who would come and go or the people who would, you know, senior officials at that time. And, um, and I think, therefore, you know, for me to re-enter the scene again some years later and be contemporaries of people who used to be way up here and I was, you know, way down there, it's it's you know it, it's hard sometimes for them to um compute that you know and sort of process it <laughs> yeah yeah i can imagine um so let's talk about some of the jobs that you had then because working for john major from 96 to 97 and then william Hague from 97 to 2001 i mean what a period in modern conservative history to for your first two jobs for two political leaders to be at that time i mean the most difficult time really the Tory parties had since the 70s. I mean, it must have been an incredible period. What was it like inside number 10 in 1996, 97? Well, I, when I worked for John Major, it was actually from 91 to 96. So I, I arrived in number 10 soon after John Major had replaced Mrs T. And I left the year before the general election in, in 97. So I, I, I didn't see the sort of finals <laughs> like, um, um, <laughs> sort of destruction, although I did actually um, volunteer during the uh, 97 election campaign. And on the night, uh, oh, well, on the morning that uh, John Major left number 10 and Tony Blair arrived, I was actually helping the political office pack up and move out uh, as Tony Blair was coming down the street. So I did actually um, witness the uh, that handover and it is brutal. It is really brutal. I mean, we were, I was, as I say, helping the political team who were there and it was a very small political team in those days. And, you know, the, the security guards are literally, literally, were literally, you know, hassling us out the back door of the garden into Horse Guards Parade where the removal van was because Tony Blair and Cherie were coming up the street. I mean, it was pretty tough, but... Um, but no, I mean, it, it was so my five years in in number 10 uh, started well, because obviously John Major was uh, elected in 92 against all the odds and, um, you know, was sort of, you know, riding very high. But that didn't last very long. And, you know, we had Black Wednesday and, you know, sort of and from that point on, you know, things were challenging and it was difficult for him. And, um, you know, and it was just sort of one thing after another. I mean, it just was never it was just relentless. Um 
So that was uh, that was an experience. But when I left, I thought that I'd left politics behind. I didn't I didn't think at that point that I would would go back to politics. I mean, I, I don't think I had realized how um, addicted I'd become to the kind of um, uh, sort of adrenaline rush that you get from being at the you know heart of the action and particularly in, in you know in the political world. Um, but, um, uh, and in fact, when I left in 96, I initially went to work for David Frost at his own uh, television production company. Um, and, um, but um, anyway, that's another story. But, um, uh, but yeah, when I went to work for William, uh, the reason why I went to do that, um, which was about six months after he'd become leader of the party, was because I'd had two years um, where things for me work-wise were not going very well. And I'd been out of work a couple of times. I've been sort of having to do temporary secretarial work through a temping agency, you know, and I was, uh, you know, I, I was on the verge of, of, you know, I don't know, thinking about going back home really as if, you know, my brother said to me, oh, sorry, you, you peaked too early, you know, and it was, what? It was all, you peaked too early. You know? I know, but that's just, <laughs> but, it's but not it was, real, is it? <laughs> but, um, um, but and I, I was approached to go and work for William and, and I thought, well, it was it seemed a better prospect than what I was doing at the time. Um, and and I didn't know him that well, to be honest with you. Um, well, I didn't really know him at all, but um, I knew Sebastian Coe a little bit, who was his chief of staff then. And um, uh, and it was I mean, it was a very tough time for the Conservatives politically. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it was a real it was a graveyard shift, basically. I mean, for William as leader of the party, uh, I mean, financially, we were in dire straits. I mean, you know, trying to you know raise any money for a party that was clearly going nowhere was was incredibly difficult. So everything was on a shoestring. We had a tiny team looking after William in the private office. Um, George Osborne was there as well, of course, because George was uh, the political secretary, um, uh, Seb, me, there was a few other people, but we used and drew on the uh, Conservative HQ people as well, because, you know, we, we didn't have a very, uh, as I say, big private office and Danny Finkelstein was there. So there was quite a, a number of characters which made the time um, fun, even though it was incredibly difficult. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, to go through sort of, you know, fighting very hard. And then at the end of it in 2001, getting one, you know, there was one net gain yeah. in terms of, you know, an election result was, was pretty grim. Must've been very difficult. Just on that period where you're struggling to find work and, and your brother says you peaked too soon. So many people would think, well, you've worked in number 10. You must, it must be dead easy to find work after that. But obviously it wasn't. No, and I think, well, I think the reason f for me was, so I got I got a job, as I say, working for David Frost, and uh, who I absolutely adored. Um, but for various reasons, that job, um, we weren't quite the match that we thought we were going to be, not because of people, we just, the job wasn't quite what I was expecting and and he wanted something which I think was not really what, what I was. Um, and and I think the problem was that when I'd left number 10, I mean, that for those 10 years I've been in the civil service, I had been 
technically speaking, in grade and salary terms, a secretary throughout that time. Now, my five years in number 10, I wasn't really a secretary at all. I mean, I was responsible for all of the um, logistics for the traveling press core on overseas trips you know I had a big big job but I never I never got given sort of any kind of status that properly equated to the responsibilities I had and when I left um the reason why I think I was struggling was because I knew I was capable of more but I didn't know what it was I was trying to be or what kind of job I was qualified to do and so the only jobs I was going for were secretarial jobs which just didn't satisfy me because that wasn't what I was. So that was why it was hard. And, um, uh, and that was why, you know, I was struggling really. And, um, and I think, you know, when you have the job like I had at number 10 and, um, you know, you were, a, you were a, a secretary, most people with those kind of jobs don't give them up. They don't leave because they are they're fantastic jobs. I've traveled the world. I was, I mean, Matt, it was just brilliant. And when people say to me now, what's the best job you ever had? I always say that job at number 10, partly because not only was it fascinating and did I see things that, you know, I never dreamed I would get the chance or go places that I would ever get the chance to go to. Um, I wasn't senior enough to have the responsibility and pressure that, you know, you get as you go further up the sort of uh, hierarchy, as it were. But the thing about it for me was that, as I say, I mean, I just knew I was capable of, uh, of more. And I think when what tends to happen in those circumstances is if you leave a job like that, people, as I say, don't expect really you to be successful in another sort of way. They, they, they pigeonhole you like that. That's how they see you. And um, so it wasn't that, you know, people were sort of, you know, I, it wasn't that I was sort of, you know, incapable of getting something better. I just, I was trying to do something which is very hard to do, which was jump off one ladder onto another. And I didn't even know what this ladder was I was trying to get to, but I was trying to get to something else, which I felt was a better reflection of what I was capable of. And that was why it was hard. And that was why going to work for William was such a, a breakthrough for me because um, it was as I, as I say this small team of you know very um, able uh, people and we had to work together in a very tight unit and therefore sort of you know I learned things from them I mean I'm very much a learner on the job type person you know I I, I like learning through sort of taking things in, observing, learning from other people. And I've been very blessed to work for some fantastic people over the years and real sort of different, uh, you know, talent. And so that was, you know, when I did that work for, for William, it, although I was, you know, I had this sort of, you know, grand fancy title, but, you know, I was still sort of, you know, just running the office, trying to boss everybody about, make everything, you know, sort of I enjoyed bossing some people like George Osborne about, whatever, you know. And uh, I didn't realize that George would one day become Chancellor of the Exchequer. But, um, um, but um, uh, what it meant was that, you know, William said to me at the end of that, you know, and I was having out of work again, um, you know, and he said to me, he gave me confidence in myself. He says, because he says, you can do, you know, you could run anything. And, um, and that was then when I thought, right, well, I, you know, I, I'm not going to settle this time around for something which is, 
um, you know, be, be below what I know I'm able of doing. And that's when I, I got this job at the BBC, which was you know, a massive breakthrough for me career-wise, you know, in terms of job status and, and sort of getting a, a role, which was a, a senior manager type role. Um, and I really was then on a different, on a different um, ladder. Still not trying to get anywhere. You know, I wasn't trying to, you know, I, it, I didn't have a destination in mind. I just wanted to be able to do, you know, to, to be in a job where I felt that I was, you know, sort of, able to fulfill my own potential really um you know and 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 that's that's you know that's what I did the time you were at the BBC as well also coincides with a sort of politically turbulent time just thinking about John Major's number 10 what was he like as a boss what what was the atmosphere like inside number 10 when he was prime minister well uh, he's uh I mean he was a he, it was quite tense, to be fair. I mean, he, I mean, I think once he became under huge amount of pressure and, you know, I mean, he had a small majority, which, you know, dwindled away, you know, he was subject to, you know, a lot of uh, op opposition and obstruction and, um, you know, and you knew it and you felt it, you know, you felt, you felt the pressure that he was under, you know, you saw it and you felt it. Um, but he's a very, I mean, he's a very decent, good man. And, and I got to know him, I felt quite well, far more than you would expect somebody like me to, um, to, to you know, to do. Because, um, you know, as I say, I travelled on all of the foreign trips, which are always quite bonding exercises. And, um, but also I ended up with the responsibility of having to do his makeup before any TV appearances, that sort of thing. So I would often sort of, or if he was going to give a speech, so I would often spend bit you know just short periods of time but with him on my own you know in in the flat and what have you and he was somebody who what I liked about him was that he was interested in what I thought and he would ask me things you know and he and I would have a genuine conversation with him about you know events of the day or or you know or just whatever you know whatever topical things were were, were happening but you know one of the contrasts between him and say when I was working for William Hague was, um, you know, William dealt with pressure in a much better way. You know, you felt with William that, um, you know, he was, he's almost Zen-like actually. I mean, he's very, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't show the, the you know, that, that, that he's worried or, or which is what you need and expect from a leader. Um, so I think that was a, that was quite a stark contrast for me. But I think also as well, looking back on John Major, and I don't think I probably, um, realize this at the time but you know when you when I think back to you know the fact that you know here was somebody who was not unlike me in many ways you know he had you know come from um you know quite an ordinary background he'd not been to university he got this you know he reached the top the real top top and a lot of the people around him um sort of uh you know, questioned his credentials almost to be in that position. And I think one of the things I learned from John Major ob observing him was that the worst thing in the world you can do is display your own insecurity, you know, because they're just going to make this just going to get worse. And I think, you know, he felt that, you know, I think he felt that sense of inferiority 
and that was something that you know was was sometimes evident um, which is a shame and I've seen it with other people as well so when you say you learned that from him do you mean you learned from his mistakes that yeah. he did display it yeah so where would he display it in private with colleagues yeah, in in you know in it just in 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 you know in the house or or whatever. I mean, he wouldn't do it obviously, sort of you know publicly. But um, you know, if he was angry, um, uh, you know about I don't know, you know, sort of newspaper column sort of criticizing. I mean, he, he got a huge amount of flack. I mean, you, you have to. I mean, I, I don't know whether you can you know you can remember to to that period. But I mean, he was constantly criticized, constant, yeah. and he was ridiculed. I think this is the difference, Matt. You know, there was a lot of there was a lot of things written about him which were designed almost to undermine him. I mean, people are ever so cruel. I mean, politics, you know, I mean, is a cruel business. I mean, it's like, you know, this chap last week, um, uh, Nick Fletcher, you know, the MP, the Tory MP, who I've never met him and didn't even, you know, sad fact that the first time I've ever heard of this chap was this, you know, video going around on Twitter about Doctor Who and, you know, male role models and what have you. But the, but the, the eagerness that people have to sort of, you know, point out, you know, oh, well, you know, sort of look how stupid that is. And I think that is something which was very prevalent towards John Major when he was prime minister. And, um, you know, and, and, I, and, I, and I think that what that does is it means that somebody like him, who was very able and capable as a prime minister, he deserved to be there. I think the campaign he fought in 92 when he was on his soapbox was brilliant. And because of his connection with people is why he got the biggest uh, vote, biggest popular vote um, I don't know whether it's been broken since, but, you know, for a long time was the, you know, the, the long, uh, biggest popular vote ever. You know, somebody with that kind of ability to connect, you know, I just wished he'd had more self-confidence in himself in order to, um, you know, not take so personally or to heart the kind of um, attacks that, you know, he would sometimes face, which were very unwarranted. I'm in fact, when I left number 10, I... Um, I, I had a leaving party and, and in my leaving speech, one of the things, you know, I said, because one of the people who used to write about him a lot in quite sort of critical terms was um, um, Simon Heffer. And, and I think I said, you know, the reason I like John Major is for all the same reasons that Simon Heffer doesn't, you know, and, and that's how I felt about him. You know? I suppose for Major as well, he was effectively leading a, a party that was, have been around a long time in government is is leading a, a fourth term government uh, and all the pressures that come with that unruly backbenchers um uh, obviously a, a leader of the opposition that's uh, highly skilled and major was paying the price not necessarily for his own um behavioral record but for some of the people around him and anyway a, a fourth term is is always going to be very very difficult mm. um and the pressure of that to keep that party in government um must have been huge. And obviously that's the contrast between him and Haig is Haig was leader of the opposition, which is you know, in a way an easier life because you don't have all the responsibility that comes with the office. But that point about ridicule is really interesting then. So the things I remember about John Mage that everyone remembers are spitting image, doing him as a, a grey puppet and more peas, Norma. And the cartoonists would put the underpants over the trouser. This, this story that he took his shirt into his underpants. Did those two things specifically get to him 
I don't know about those two things specifically, um, but I think it was just that, um, you know, I, I would say it was just it was just the constant sort of sense that um, uh, he was, you know, subject to that sort of, you know, general sort of ridicule. I mean, I never spoke to him specifically about any of those things. I mean, I wouldn't, but um, uh, but I think, you know, it was also interesting to when I when I uh, was in David Cameron's cabinet, and I used to see David Cameron up close quite a lot because I used to go to his morning meetings, um, you know, his sort of eight thirty morning meetings when I was leader of the house, and. Um, and again, to me, and David Cameron wasn't somebody I knew personally before he asked me to, to go in the House of Lords. But, you know, to contrast the way he was prime minister to John Major was also quite interesting for me to me, because that was sort of, you know, he's somebody who had grown up in that sort of um, uh, uh, you know, sort of, I guess, um with expectations, I suppose, that, you know, he would be able and, and capable of, of, of being a prime minister. And, and that, that self-confidence and that self-belief, I think, you know, was, um, you know, was, it, was, a, you know was, was an important aspect of him being able to, you know, shoulder that responsibility in quite a sort of um, uh, light touch way. I was always impressed with the way David Cameron dealt with the pressure in, in quite an easy manner. Um, you know, and it's a really, you know, it's, it's, a, that's a skill that is, and not, not many people can do that, you know. Um, do you it's, think it's class and background thing. play a, a part in that, that major, perhaps his insecurities about not having been to university, a, a more humble background contrasted with Cameron's perhaps, not maybe entitlement, a less generous person might say, and obviously growing up in Eton and places like that, where you're around power and status a lot more, that that perhaps made it easier for Cameron. I mean, I think I. I mean, I think when you've been to schools like Eton, and you know, and you've had that sort of education, and you've been through sort of Oxford and all that sort of thing, I mean, you're bound to. I mean, that sort of education and the knowledge that it provides um, creates the confidence that that you know people sort of then sort of you know have that that you know allows them to to deal with you know to do you know I don't know consider themselves qualified for these roles I mean this is the other thing that you know there's a there's an awful lot of people out there who consider themselves qualified for things because of the you know that the, the education that they've had or the background that they've come from but they're actually not that good at what they do you know I mean you know just going back to when I was temping for a couple of years between number 10 and working for William Hague, one of the benefits I gained from that period was going around working for different bosses and just thinking, oh, have you got these jobs? You know, it was like, you know, I'd been quite fortunate up to that point in my working life that the people I'd worked for had been, you know, high quality people who you could see that they, you know, they deserve to be in the positions that they were in. Whereas, you know, once you started to see that there's an awful lot of people who um, get on in life, you know, and they might have lots of qualifications, um, but they're actually sort of, you know, not that capable. Um, and that, again, was to <laughs> spurred me on, because I thought, well, you know, I ended up sometimes doing their jobs for them. Um, so, um, so I do think, you know, I, I do think, um, there's a sort of there's a difference if you have come through an upbringing or a you know a type of education um, that you know just 
you know, makes, convinces you that you are, you are capable, which again, it goes back to my mom. You see, you know, my mom telling me all the time that we were successful, you know, and made me sort of think, you know, well, I am, I mean, she never told me I was anything other. So why would I believe I wasn't? I believed I was capable. You know, when people think about privilege and class and people finding themselves in positions that perhaps they don't entirely merit due to their background, people would think about uh, the current government. People would say, well, Boris Johnson would never have got there had he, had he grown up in Beeston and gone to the schools that, that you or I went to. Do you think that's fair? Um, well, but, you know, you mean, has Boris only got there because... I don't know, really. Um... I mean, I think, I, 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 I don't know, I mean, of course, you know, I mean, you know, the, the fact that he had that sort of background that he had, you know, I mean, that will have contributed to his own, um, um, you know, the, the, the jobs that he ended up getting and the career path he took and, you know, everything else. I mean, um, you know, and I do think it's true that, you know, if you are sort of at, I went to Chilwell Comp, you know, I mean, I I can't imagine there's many people from Chilwell Comp who, you know, have, have uh, you know, have, have got to where I've got to. In fact, funny enough, when I, when, when I first was in London, I remember, you know, going back to these RAF officers that I worked with, and one of them saying one time that, you know, there was some issue that they were dealing with. And he said, oh, yes, he said, um, oh, I know uh, so-and-so in that department. I was at school with him. And I remember thinking, as he said that, I thought, wow, that's amazing. You know somebody in that building you were at school with. And I could, I'd never, you know, I thought I'd love it if there was somebody here I was at school with. You know, I was like a long way from home. Um so I, you know, I, I think that's, I think that's true, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want, I think there's a danger sometimes of us, as a, of us trying to, of us believing that, you know, people who are not from, you know, a sort of public school, um, top ranking university background are somehow incapable of being appealing uh, as a you know political leader to people who have come from a different background i think one of i think the reason boris is successful and has achieved the um you know majority that he has is because um i think you know for most people he um seems to you know understand and respect and like people who um, are people that I grew up with, you know, and and I think because he doesn't ever seem to do anything which um, ridicules anybody with that sort of background um, is part of what makes him popular, what makes him attractive. Um, and people don't mind that you went to Eton, that's irrelevant. Yeah. But I guess it's more about if we're thinking about things like class and how people end up in places and how rare it is for someone who went to your school to end up in the House of Lords. The other side of that seesaw is why are certain people from certain backgrounds overrepresented? Yeah. And in a meritocratic scenario, would people like Boris Johnson and David Cameron have reached the officers they had had we all had an equal start in life? I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, it's never, you know, it's never going to be that way, is it? No. Really? Um, 
<laughs> You've written an essay for the Social Market Foundation about this stuff. The education yeah. divide is about disrespect, why it matters, and what graduates should do about it. Um, so th this this notion about education and class, and, and I guess the point you're making about is, is education and not class is the divide in politics. How do you mean? Well, when you look at the major uh, democratic events of the last five years, um, the big sort of divide now is less about class and more about um, your educational attainment. So um, how how long you were in education is the, the single biggest um, uh, sort of factor which will determine which way you vote, say, say in you know, the ref EU referendum and even now in uh, general elections. And it's something which, although it's now starkly exposed since the referendum, uh, and indeed in the US since Trump, uh, research shows that this has been a phenomenon that is uh, across the Western world that has been sort of uh, there for about the last uh, 15, 20 years, actually. It's not new, but we're now seeing it much more uh, clearly than we've seen it before. And um, my point is, is that, um, uh, you know, in a world where, um, you, you know, going to university now is the sort of default position you know, more people go to university than, you know, ever before. And what's happened, you know, since, um, I mean, you know, I mean, major sort of uh, tried to, um, uh, you know, sort of equalise the, you know, polytechnics and what have you. So it started a bit with him. But when, when Blair also came in, you know, it, it made, you know, this policy more and more people go to university. And I think what you have now, and we touched on it earlier, is that, you know, people who are in positions of power, define success in their own image and they think that the route that they took to get there which is you know usually through university is the is the route that everybody uh, should take and um and even though people in positions of power may become maybe from now a wider range of social classes they're all pretty much uh, university educated. And so what you see now in you know across whether it's in the media or in business, uh, journalism, you know, even sort of in the higher ranks, uh, higher ranks of you know the police now, is that most people in positions of responsibility are graduates, and uh, and what what's happened is is a greater uh, distance from the sort of ruling class to you know other people who feel that they are making a contribution, they're successful on their own terms. Um, but what they are contributing uh, is not recognised and they're not being taken seriously by um, people, you know, like me in, uh, in positions of, of power. And so what I'm what I tried to do in that pamphlet was to, um, you know, help um, shed some light on this and help um, try to um, you know, help the sort of, you know, the, the decision making classes, ruling classes, elite, whatever you want to call them you know, help them understand better that half of the population who are different from them because they didn't go to university. But the reason they're, the, the problem is not them, it's the ruling classes. And the solution is not to educate them better. They're educated fine. Thank you very much. The, you know, the, the challenge is for the, you know, the, the sort of graduate class to um, respect and understand better how they can work more effectively with people who have been educated differently to them. Uh, and isn't part of the problem that people think, well, I had to pay for my degree, you know, I had to go through all that, I, I better get some flipping benefit from it. You know, you, we have to have jobs that are for graduates only because otherwise what's the point in, in all that outlay? 
Well, that's true, but but you know we're also seeing a situation now where there you know there aren't that many um, there aren't enough graduate jobs for all the graduates. So you get then the sort of graduates competing with the non graduates for the non graduate jobs. And what will the bosses do? They're more likely to recruit the uh, graduates into them because, you know, well, you know, they think, well, they're sort of more qualified. And perhaps also they will display the kind of mindset or attitude that they, the, the boss can recognize as another graduate, you know. So you're, you know, we're perpetuating this, this problem where, the value of individuals is based on their academic credentials rather than on their character. What I'm sort of trying to argue in that pamphlet is that everybody, um, you know, needs a purpose in life. You know, we all, we all want to be successful on our own terms. And um, having a purpose in life means that you've got, you know, a stake. So if you're doing a job, you shouldn't just be a functionary. You should be doing, you know, whatever it is that you do, you need to understand um, uh, how it fits into a bigger picture. And that, you know, whatever, you know, wherever you find yourself on the, you know, on, on, on the sort of um, uh, job picture, as it were, or the hierarchy at work, that, um, Yes, you will require different qualifications in order to do the job that you've been employed to do, but there should be some common sort of qualifications, as it were, some common credentials, some common standards that are still important and are sort of, you know, things, these are characteristics which bridge across an educational divide and allow us to trust each other and work together and allows people who um, are, you know, not in powerful roles um, but at the mercy of people who are making decisions that affect their lives to look at these powerful people and think, well, I, you know, you're telling me this is a decision that is the right thing for the country or the right thing for this part of the country. Um, you know, you're displaying characteristics or credentials that I can see and judge that, you know, you're a decent enough person. I will, you know, I will trust what you are saying. And it's it's this sort of thing. It's, it's trying to sort of promote something which is beyond academic qualifications as important to us actually being able to work together and, and not see these massive divides. But because the point, the point is, Matt, sorry, you know, the reason why I did this work is because, you know, a lot of people were blindsided by Brexit, you know, didn't see it coming whatsoever. And, um, uh, and they like to think that that was an aberration, you know, that was a one-off and, you know, we're just going to get back to normal and keep carrying on. And my argument is it wasn't an aberration. That was, you know, a real message that things are not right and things need to change. And if those of us who are in the, you know, decision making sort of uh, classes don't understand that we are part of the problem and that we have to understand better why people felt it necessary to disrupt democratically you know um the uh, the status quo then you know we're going to see more and more of that disruption so this is about you know helping us understand where we're going wrong and and try and address that with certain jobs obviously qualifications are legally required for very important reasons if you're going to be a surgeon or if you're going to be a psychologist or a lawyer you need to have the qualification in order to do it but for other jobs where they might stipulate people need a degree well, actually, it's not relevant to, to that line of work. I mean, really, sh should that be allowed? You know, if, if someone's got a degree in, I don't know, art, and they're applying for a job at, you know, a management 
job at, a, at something completely different and they're given preference over someone who actually might have experience in that field, doesn't that distort the labour market? Should that really be allowed? I don't, I mean, I, I, I don't think it should be. I don't think that it should be um, possible for, you know, employers to state you know, specific qualifications or levels of education, which are just irrelevant. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, and it's, uh, it is a, um, you know, it creates unnecessary barriers. I mean, that's what it's doing. But I mean, you know, back to your point earlier about, you know, someone from Chilwell Comp, like my old school getting to where I've gone now. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very aware that, you know, when I go and talk to, um, you know, sixth formers about, you know, sort of their careers and, and what have you, that, you know, without a degree now, it's really hard for, for somebody to do what I've done. You know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, so I can understand why everybody's going to get a degree. Yeah. Um, uh, and we've got to open up new routes to um, people to, to progress, because the other point that I make in this um, pamphlet is that there are um, uh, qualities from people who are not university educated, which, um, uh, you know, are valuable because, you know, they're differences which are valuable. So, you know, I, I believe that, uh, you know, obviously I say this based on my own experience as, a, as an on-graduate, that, you know, some of us, you know, learn better, you know, I, I, I have to learn to do rather than learn to know. If I've got to study in order to know something, just to know, just for the sake of it, I'm not very good at that, you know, whereas if I know that I'm learning something in order to do something, I'm different again. And I learn best, as I said before, through observing and absorbing and that sort of thing. And I think that's not, that's not uncommon. That's quite normal. Um, and the other thing about those of us who are not, um, whose knowledge comes from experience as opposed from studying books, is that we, I think, are um, instinctively better at seeing the bigger picture. Because when we see a problem, you know, we, um, we, we sort of zoom out in order to sort of really sort of spot, you know, what, what's happening here? What's, what, what is the real cause of um, the obstruction or, or something not working as, as well as it can? And, and that's a fantastic attribute to have. Um, you know, there are a lot of um, people who would benefit, a lot of organisations who would benefit from that kind of um, uh, quality, you know, amongst their workforce. And it's there, but they just don't know how and where to find it because they only, all, what they're looking for all the time is McKinsey sorts. You know, well, you know, it's like, well, McKinsey sorts, that's great, but do you know what? They're not always the best people at defining the problem in the first place. And that's what I'm saying. You know, there's this great, there's great skills out there which are being wasted. But what happens is when you get a non-graduate type and it's compounded if they're sort of, you know, not from a fancy school too, but if you get a non-graduate type who is then plonked amongst graduates and, you know, and is in a, is a, a situation where they can sense that what is being proposed is, is not right, and they're required to sort of, you know, intervene, make sort of say, actually, I disagree and express themselves fluently and speedily in order to not lose the attention of all these graduates that, you know, are not going to be patient with somebody who doesn't speak like them. It's almost impossible, you know, and, and I think that, you know, if we can break down that barrier, 
we have a you know we have a chance of um i think you know sort of succeeding you know create even more success um and it's it's what i'm trying to do is is get people who you know are in jobs like mine or in you know in, in other kind of walks of life see this uh, and understand this um so that they are a bit more you know open minded than they've been up to now you know it's not all about graduates we mentioned earlier that you work for the bbc um in 2003, you were head of comms to the BBC Trust um, and worked for various uh, Gavin Davies, Michael Grades, and Michael Lyons. What was it like working with Gavin Davies around the time of the Hutton Report? Well, <laughs> it was tough. I mean, it was, um, yeah, no, it was, it was very, very, it was it was um, incredible, really. I mean, he, I went to um, the Hutton Inquiry the day that Gavin gave evidence. And, um, and it was the same day that Tony Blair gave evidence. So I was in the small um, courtroom and, uh, you know, was, was there. I saw Blair give his, his evidence to Hutton and he left the stand and Gavin um, came in straight after. Crikey, it's that centre court at Wimbledon, isn't it? Yeah, really? it was actually, yeah, yeah. And, there. <laughs> but the contrast between the two was, was, was amazing because Blair was like this, it was literally like an Oscar performance. I mean, you know, obviously he's a barrister anyway, so he knows how to perform in front of a judge. And, you know, and Gavin... And he's a marvellous man, you know, incredibly decent. Um, but, you know, Gavin, you know, is very, very thorough, very detailed, but not a performer whatsoever. And the contrast between the two was, um, you know, was, was something to see. But it was, it was incredibly difficult. And, and at the end of that uh, whole process, um, which, you know, as you know, um, the Lord Hutton found in favour of um, the government and against the BBC and, um, you know, Gavin resigned um, and Greg was I mean it was just it was awful really I mean it was very it was very destabilizing at the BBC at the time I mean the the day that Gavin uh, resigned we had a board meeting that night because the report came out and then he resigned and I remember um, he wanted to get the message out that he was going to resign and and I think I rang Andrew Marr who was the political editor at the time of the BBC but he wouldn't take it from me he he only wanted to speak to to Gavin and uh, and it, it was it caused quite a fuss actually because by the time the board arrived Gavin was already had already resigned and it was already running on the news so it was all very messy and um, uh, and then later on that night you know we sort of the board was still meeting and there's a whole question about you know do they sack Greg Dyke or do they get him to resign? And, you know, oh, it was just, you know, very, very um, unsettling. But, um, yeah, but, you know, you get through it. And, um, <clears throat> you know, an institution like the BBC sort of, you know, um, manages to, to, to continue. But it was, it was tough. It was, it was very difficult. Um, and I think for me, professionally, you know, I mean, I felt, God, you know, um, it was, it was, it was a very it was a massive challenge, you know, to deal with that massive. And, you know, cause everybody was, you know, it was, it was very hard to control it as a, you know, as a sort of media story and, you know, so many different characters. And as I say, you know, lots of emotions and, and um, uh, yeah, no, it was hard. It was hard. And how did you feel about Hutton's findings? Did you think they were correct? Um, no, not really. Um, I mean, I thought that, um, 
you know, I mean, I think the BBC was at fault, as in I think the way in which they brought that story to air was, uh, you know, was was wrong. I mean, they, you know, it was, I, I, mean, I think technically it was outside, you know, to breach its own editorial um, standards. But, um, you know, it was a good story without it, you know, being sort of dealt with in such a chaotic fashion. Um, but I think that what was um, what was disappointing wasn't just that, you know, the government, um, uh, you know, the government fight, yeah, the the uh, Hutton's finding and the and the government's reaction, but that you know the the Tory party as well <laughs> sort of jumped on the same you know side as the government. I mean, it was like everybody you know was was on um, was on on sort of you know supportive of the Hutton finding, I suppose. Um, but um, uh, and you know, and I think sort of you know in the years that have have, have followed, um, you know, the BBC in some respects has been vindicated, you know, by you know knowledge and you know what what's come out since but you know at the same time as i say i think the bbc you know was in the wrong uh in some respects and um it learned some good lessons from there it got its act together you know got itself you know in better order i mean i felt for greg i mean greg as a director general you know he had you know inspired you know a lot of enthusiasm and uh energy in the bbc which perhaps had been sort of you know not there before you know before i mean uh he was already there when i arrived at the beep um and i think for him to leave in those circumstances was um you know quite uh you know quite sad really um but um but you know as i say at the same time um there was you know different things that um you know improved following that but i think you know to be honest with you matt i mean you know i had nine years at the bbc and i had a good career there and i'm very grateful to it um uh for that time and um you know and i think it's a you know an important part of our national life and our social fabric all of those sorts of things but you know the bbc can be its own worst enemy and um you know and i think uh that you know, too often it, it, it defends the institution rather than defending or promoting the purpose uh, that it exists for and the license fee payers or, you know, the sort of, you know, general population more generally. And, and I think it can get a bit too um, self-important. Uh, and I think that uh, Tim Davey is right to um, promote and the need for it to, you know, recognise that impartiality in this day and age isn't just about party politics. Back to what we were talking about before, there's a whole part of the population that feels misunderstood, underserved by the BBC, not taken seriously, feels that they're being preached at, you know, sometimes through, you know, programmes that it's turned on for a bit of entertainment and suddenly, you know, hey, what's going on here? You know, is, there's a message, you know, I didn't, I wasn't expecting this. So there's, there's, I think there are things that it needs to do to be better. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, it, it's, uh, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd hate us to be without it, you know, um, but, um, uh, but no, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a continual, you know, it has to be, you know, forever striving to be better than it ever is, in my view, it can never, you know, it can get, it can get complacent, very much so. Because the perception often is that, you know, the Tories really don't like the BBC and they see it as a, a liberal lefty London based metropolitan elite uh, institution um, that uh, isn't neutral at all. 
Um, and then other people say, well, hang on a second. You've got Tim Davey, who, you know, stood to be a councillor for the Tories. Craig Oliver was there. He then went to work for number 10. I think people get confused as to whether the BBC's left wing or right wing and, and whether the Tory party's keen or, or against it. I mean, when you talk to colleagues, what's your sense of, of what the Tory party view of, of the BBC is? Well, I, I mean, I, I think... You know, there is a sort of um, default position that they sort of, you know, expect it, you know, they suspect it's a, you know, just as a lefty type of organisation. Um, but I think there is also, you know, a, um, a feeling that it is an important part, as I say, of, of our national life and they wouldn't want to be without it. I mean, from my own perspective, when I first went to work there, I was pleasantly surprised by the seriousness um, uh, that you know they attach to impartiality you know I was quite surprised by that genuinely um and um but I think that um th the thing is with um the BBC is as I say it's not just about party politics and I, I, you know you see this now everywhere um you know with with institutions you know sort of business uh, and other public institutions as well is this um uh rather sort of lazy attitude that, um, you know, politics is only about whether it's, you know, sort of left or right or Labour, Lib Dem or Tories. And, and I think what we, you know, have seen more and more in recent years, and it's only going to, to, to continue, is that politics, people don't define politics in that way. And the institutions who have a responsibility to not be political and to serve everybody, um, need to stop relying on their sort of, you know, uh, adherence to being non-partisan as an excuse for them not understanding their other partiality, which I do think um, is driven by, um, you know, a lot of sort of metropolitan type sort of attitudes and sneeriness sometimes, you know, towards people, back to what we were talking about before, you know, to people who, you know, may not be university educated, um, but, you know, are successful in their own terms. I mean, there's a sort of, there's a sort of view, I think, amongst the you know educated um classes as it were is that you know there's either people like them who are highly educated and engage in dialogue and debates about sort of highfalutin sort of things and a lot of them now as i say are from a range of different sort of social classes they're not all you know eaten a lot of them will have you know come from sort of ordinary backgrounds but will have gone through university so therefore have gone through this rinse cycle which makes them all sort of see the world and think in the same way and there's like them and then the other people that they have a lot of concern and care for will be people who are, you know, sort of having to rely on food banks or sort of, you know, or, or benefits. And it's like, well, that's, you know, that's not unimportant, but there's a huge amount of people in between that, you know, who feel that nobody understands them and, you know, and they're playing a big part of our national life and our economy and um, they're either sort of laughed at or, you know, what they are doing is just not taken seriously or their views when they express a view, whether it's about you know, immigration or climate change or anything, which is a bit like, oh, don't, you know, don't express a view that is, you know, sort of a little bit, you know, different, some bit. It's like, oh, no, well, we don't take them seriously because, you know, 
they they think like that and and that's the kind of impartiality that i think you know is not yet properly understood by an institution like the bbc they're not alone and and that's why you know i i'm encouraged very much by sort of tim davies um you know decision to give that you know the weight and importance that he seems to have done but you know he's got to be more than talk he's got to really sort of walk the walk on something like climate change though where it is clear and it is an emergency you can't have the bbc going oh well you know but there's another side to this i mean there really is no other side to climate change if we don't sort this out we're all you know the planet's gonna you know we're all gonna die i mean it would be ludicrous for the bbc to say well you know we can't do comedy taking the mick out of people who are climate change deniers but i think but i don't think there is a i think you know there is a there's a accepted um position that climate change is real and it needs tackling i don't think that is something which is um, you know, challenged or or in you know a matter for you know sort of discussion or dispute, but I think there are nonetheless you know um, a, still a debate to be had about you know how some of this gets addressed, priorities that get given to different kind of um, uh, you know solutions and that sort of thing, and that's where I do think it's important that people still feel that. You know, there is, there is, you know, there are other options that get aired. It's not about, you know, sort of, it's not about climate deniers. It's about sort of, you know, just not assuming that everybody's going to rush out and buy an electric car, you know, or whatever, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was in a, you know, taxi the other day, a black cab here in London, you know, you get in a cab and, you know, you listen to the cab driver, you know, and, and they're sort of saying, you know, it's like if they've got to buy an electric cab, you know, it's 80 grand, you know, that they've got to pay for that and this, that and the other and, you know, all this sort of. And it's like, well, you know, who's talking about it from their perspective? Yeah. You know, it's there is a lot of people out there who feel that they need to hear that, you know, their actual experience of some of these policies is not being ignored. Those electric cabs are amazing, though. Have you been in one? <laughs> my god they're incredible they, they've got first the main thing is they've got sunroofs which is you know if you're going through a city like london it, it, the benefit is huge they're more spacious they get about 50 miles to a charge and then they have to use petrol um i've been <laughs> i talked to a lot of taxi drivers as i'm sure you do as well and the ones that have them really like them that's the thing the ones that have got them think they're great i love i love black cab drivers but, uh, no, they're good. They're always good for a debate, good for a discussion. Well, this has been a very good discussion, Tina. And I've kept you longer than I said I would, which, which often happens on the show. There's so much more I wanted to ask you about. So oh, hopefully, I know. hopefully you'll come on again in the future. Well, we could. I mean, there's, there's, yeah, we could have talked about lots more. But well, I, 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 if you would like to invite me again, I'd love to come back again and talk more. So Brilliant. it's been a real pleasure. Can I, can I get a plug in for my podcast? Though? Absolutely. <laughs> So just because this podcast is called Tina Talks to Today's Britons, and uh, if you uh, or any of your listeners want to hear from people who feel that they're not well understood, rather than listening to me about it, you can tune in, you can hear a warehouse worker, a hairdresser, an oil rig worker, some funeral directors, a secretary, and hear them talk about um, what things seem like from where they are. Great. Well, I'll put a link to that in the blurb. So if you're listening to this, uh, well, if you're not listening to it, how would you know? There's a link to that. And I'll put a link to your essay as well, which is fantastic. Oh, that's fun. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers, man. Cheers. Thank you.
Well, there you go. Tina stole the stuff about Hutton. Absolutely amazing. And the stuff about John Major. Because I always thought he seemed like a very zen guy. I mean, he still does. He's so calm on the surface. But obviously the pressure behind the scenes gets to people. And that point about ridicule uh, is so powerful. Um, but I put a link to Tina's article for the Social Market Foundation in the blurb in the show notes so that you can read that. I've also put a link to her podcast where she talks to people in Nottingham. So uh, if you're uh, interested in perhaps hearing voices that you don't often hear elsewhere or you just want more of a Nottingham accent than you already get on this podcast, uh, then download that. Don't forget you can get tickets for all future shows, live shows of the political party. And I can, so close to being able to announce some more guests for next year, but the next three shows, my word, a Christmas special with Rosanna Allen Khan and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Then on Monday the 10th of January, Neil Kinnock. And then Monday the 24th of January, Angela Rayner. Oh my word. They are, obviously, I would say this, but they are very, very special nights. There is no substitute for being able to see the show live. So maybe, now that it's Christmas, and Merry Christmas, by the way, what a great Christmas present some tickets to the political party would be for that special person in your life. And you can buy them all at mattford.com slash live. I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. 